Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting capitalallocatorspodcast.com. My guest on today's show is Michael Mobison. I'm really excited to share this conversation with you. Michael doesn't need a lot of introduction in our circles, but he is the director of research at Blue Mountain Capital, a multi-billion dollar hedge fund and asset manager, and has spent the majority of his professional career thinking and writing about decision-making, behavior, and complex systems. Michael had two stints, two long stints at Credit Suisse, and spent nearly a decade alongside Bill Miller at Leg Mason. He's also been an adjunct professor at Columbia Business School for 24 years and is the author of three books. Every time I get a chance to speak to Michael, I come away thinking better 
and feeling smarter, and this time was no exception. Our conversation covers Michael's early career, the paradox of skill, academic research that's actually more favorable to active management than some of what we normally hear, decision-making, optimal size and composition of teams, unsettling features in the market, data analysis in sports, career risk, the Santa Fe Institute, and Michael's new research on the horizon. Please enjoy my conversation with Michael Mobison. Michael, thanks for joining me. Ted's awesome to be with you. You know, I love starting with people's backgrounds. And I'm curious, when someone ends up being a strategist, what were you like as a kid? <laughs> Misspent youth, probably the best answer. No, I, I, you know, I grew up in central New York in a college town and mostly was interested in sports. So I spent most of my time either playing or participating in sports in some level. So didn't really do much with my education until probably after college, actually, honestly. But I was a jock. All of this, the studying, continuous learning that you do didn't start till later on? Really after college, truly. So how did you find your way to Wall Street? I went to Georgetown. I was a government major, econ minor, had never taken any business courses. I did have an odd summer job, though. My father was a car dealer. I grew up in Ithaca, New York, near Cornell. And during the summers, to help earn money for college, I worked as a salesman. So mid-1980s, right, what's hot or what's on the ascent is Wall Street. I had a little bit of sales background. I learned some of the basics of sales and just knew, knew I needed to get a job. And so a bunch of firms interviewed. One of them was Drexel Burnham Lambert, which is where I ended up. And what year was it? It was 1986. And there's a kind of a quick, funny story about this because it goes back to maybe sports is I did well enough on an on-campus interview that I was invited to New York. And that's, you know, sort of a big deal. As you know, you're a college senior. You don't really know what's going on. So I got my best suit. Come up here. And, you know, there were like 15 or 20 candidates interviewing for this thing. They go, you're going to have five interviews, five or six interviews, and you get 10 minutes with a head guy. So... You know, you, you want to be good all day, but 10 minutes, make sure you're shine for your 10 minutes. So the, my, my 10 minutes arrives, I come, you know, see this big executive and I walk into his office and he's got this Washington Redskins trash can. So I'm a sports fan. I'd gone to a couple games. The Redskins were good at the time. So I commented like great trash can. And, and he goes off on this tangent about how, you know, sports is a metaphor for life and how Washington is so great. And to make a long story short, I get the job and it turns out that, while the other people hadn't really voted for me to join the firm to offer a job, <laughs> this guy like overrode them and said like, oh, I really like this kid. So yeah, I mean, I really, I had no business probably having this job. And as I like to say, I mean, I really, I, I took no business courses. I took, I took accounting when I was a senior at my father's urging and I got like a C plus out of the generosity of the, of the professor's heart. So I really had very little experience in all this. One of the things I will say about the Drexel Burnham program, which I even acknowledged at the time was it was amazing in the sense it was 18 months long and it was, we wrote, we did some classroom work and then we rotated through about, I don't know, it was 10 or 20 different departments. So if you were a young person who didn't really know where you wanted to an end up, having access to trading desks and operations and investment banking and research, it would allow you to figure out at least where you thought your skills and interests best aligned. And that was in New York. Drexel was known for what was happening in LA with Milken at the Times. What was that like? Drexel was, was pretty strong everywhere, but I think, yeah, like you said, the focal point was in California. It never went out there for any of that stuff. And I will say that, you know, I, I do believe this. Your first job often has a lot to do with your 
your professional socialization. And Drexel's equity research department, which I ended up being an equity analyst, was very influential. I mean, I, I followed those analysts very closely. They had a style that was a little bit different than I think the more traditional firms. They were a little bit more aggressive. And in many ways, that was very influential. And one other thing at Drexel, that job was, the termination of that job was to be a retail broker, right? A financial advisor, which I did for 12 months and was an abject failure. <laughs> so that's yeah, another, lesson. You know you can that, see that that's another lesson of life is to say like, you know, it's good to know what you're not good at. And I realized that I wanted to do research. So I finally landed a research job. But a couple years later, I was a junior analyst and I got an offer to be the senior analyst at County Nat West. And this is early 19, probably 1991. And the key is that County Nat West had taken over the Drexel operations. So it was a lot of ex Drexel equity guys, both in sales and research and so forth. So in a sense, it was almost like a coming home, even though it was a different firm. And again, very important. These are like these weird little happenstance things that come along that that are incredibly important in terms of propelling my, my own career. So, you know, chalk that up to luck. But, but yeah, that was great. I know you started in consumer and packaged goods. Was, was that just where they threw you in or was there any choice and interest that led you there? No, it's actually really interesting. So I would say that in my 30 plus years of Wall Street, the analyst who I thought was the, the greatest analyst I've ever seen operate was a guy named Alan Grediter, who was the food industry analyst at Drexel Burnham. And in many ways, a huge impact on, on the way I thought about the world. He, he was a great analyst and happened to be a very good time for that industry. And he was very influential. What was it about the way he went about it that well, made him so good? You know, he was very focused on economic value and cash flows, you know, an early proponent of things like share buybacks. But when you, when you roll back to the mid 80s and early 90s, these were quite novel things. He had the ear of a lot of senior executives. I, I just think that he looked at the businesses in a way that was different. You know, most traditional analysts were at the time and probably even to some degree today quite sleepy, you know, earnings and PE multiples. He was very focused on cash and economic values. So that guy got me interested in that sector, generally speaking. And so my first junior analyst job was to be support a food beverage tobacco guy. And so basically, I knew a little bit about those companies, having been an avid, enthusiastic follower of this guy. And that really was the path. It was because this guy, my interest, and one thing led to another. And what happened to him now? It's not a, not a name that I know. Yeah, he died quite tragically at very young age. I think he was in his late 30s. And it was, you know, so unfortunate. I think it was an auto accident, probably in the late 80s. You know, I think if you and I get in a room, it's going to be hard not to talk about active <laughs> management. So why... Are there no 400 hitters in active management anymore? It's a really interesting question. And, and by the way, I should just mention that the background for all this is some, some really great work by Stephen Jay Gould, the, the late biologist from Harvard. And he wrote a book in 1996 called Full House. And it was really about trends, how to think about trends, how to think about distributions. And this is where I first learned about this concept that I think we can, we can translate to active management. So Ted Williams, the last guy to hit 400 in Major League Baseball in 1941. The question, why is no one re re replicated that? And, you know, it's interesting because there, there were theories that Gould points out, you know, the players are more tired or they're not trying as hard or they play at night or whatever it is. And what he ultimately argued for was it was the, what he called the spread of excellence. And this is a concept I ultimately, I called the paradox of skill, but really I want to say that that was his idea, right? And so the basic concept is that in the paradox of skills, it, when both luck and skill are contributing to outcomes, which, which is most things, right? There are some things that are mostly skill, like running races, but 
but most things in life have at least a dollop of luck. It can be the case that a skill gets better, luck becomes more important, which seems completely backwards, right? And this goes back to this 400 hitting thing. And here's a way to think about it. So skill, you can think about two different dimensions. One is absolute skill. And I think we could look around the world. I mean, whether it's sports or business, just look at the quality of products, quality of automobiles today versus two or three generations ago, very uniform, very high. And clearly in the world of investing, that's the case, right? So absolute skills never been better. Saying that differently, Ted, if I gave you, you know, all the technology at your fingertips today and the information access and trading costs and so forth and put you back in the 60s or 70s, you would crush the competition, right? But the second dimension, this is what I think Gould pointed out so brilliantly, was is relative skill. And that's the difference between the very best participant and the average participant. And what Gould argued in case after case is that the variance has been going down. So the difference between the very best and the average is less. So let's make this a little bit more quantitative. Ted Williams in 1941 was almost exactly a four standard deviation event, right? So you take the average of all the batting averages, you figure out the standard deviation, four standard deviation, 406, almost on the button. By the way, the average of batting average really hasn't changed that much over time, right? Because it's a pun intended, arms war between hitters and pitchers, right? They both are improving in lockstep. So you don't see their absolute improvements. You just, you see that they're relatively standing still. So basically what's happened is the standard deviation's gone down over time, which means for standard deviation event in 2000, I don't, I haven't done the 2017 numbers, but 2016 numbers would get you to about 380. And 380 is awesome, right? For hitting, you win the batting title, right? But you don't get anywhere near that, four, that magical 400 number. So the point is, there's more uniform excellence. And so now we cover the world of active management. And I think you see a very similar type of story, which is the people drawn to this industry are today extremely well-educated, very well-trained, access to incredible information, academic research that's out there. And as a consequence, the degree of the uniformity of excellence is probably higher and makes it more difficult to distinguish yourself. So one of the ways to quantify that is we measure the standard deviation of excess returns, the standard deviation of alpha, right? So you imagine alpha plotted as a bell-shaped distribution, which is roughly not a horrible way to look at it. And that bell has been getting skinnier over time. And just as it has for batting average, by the way, very, very parallel. There's an interesting little side note on this, by the way, is that Peter Bernstein, the great Peter Bernstein, who wrote wonderful books, just a great economic historian, wrote a, a couple of essays about this, and he talked about the reintroduction of the 400 hitter. And it's really interesting because it, it was a completely a function of the timing. So that standard deviation had been going down, 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 60s, 70s, 80s, into the 90s. And then there was a massive reversal where the standard deviation went way back up around the dot-com period. And so there's a spike, and then it come, Then after the dot-com bubble, sort of the bubble burst, and, and we had the bear market, it went right back, it reverted right back to trend. So it's an interesting thing. There are, I mean, there, there was this episode, at least, a three- or four-year period where we had that blowout of the standard deviation again, and there was an opportunity for the 400 hitters to show up. You know, Bernstein happened to write that right at that time, so really interesting. Are there examples, either from evolutionary biology or other areas where you see this skill increase and then over time it actually does revert well the, like the skill reverts like it's worse 
either the skill reverts or in this case, the standard deviation widens out for more of a prolonged period of time. So, well, first of all, I mean, I think the skill reverting in most things, certainly physical endeavors, you know, we are grinding toward physiological limits. And if you look at things like marathon times or sprinting or swimming, and and as you also know that the, the times are converging. So the difference between gold, silver, bronze is less today than it was years ago, which is not surprising. But there can be episodes, like in investing, you might ask the question, why, why did the standard deviation widen? And I'm not sure I know exactly what the answer is, but the, the most, you know, certainly a couple candidates are what you want are the introduction of weaker players into the game so that you can express your skill. So this would be like now in Major League Baseball, instead of great, these Major League pitchers in pitching, you have some guy who walks in off the street and an amateur starts pitching. And the equivalent in the stock market is mom and pop investors re-entering back into the market. And I think you'd seen a trend throughout the 80s and 90s where individuals were basically, they were still invested in the market, but mostly through mutual funds, they were much less directly involved. And that reversed in the 1990s, that people got excited and started to do direct investment. It's almost always the case when individuals get excited and start directly investing that the story doesn't end happily for them. So I think when you see episodes of people who are less sophisticated getting involved it, with reasonable sums of money, that's probably the case where you could get that standard deviation blow back out. And again, the baseball al- analogy would be the amateur comes in and pitches a few innings and, and you know, the be- best hitter is going to eat them up. You know, we've talked a lot about indexing and you've made the very astute observation that if indexing means that those weaker players are coming out of the market, it could get even more difficult. Do you have any feeling for what the tipping point was over the last, it's really three, four, five years where all of a sudden massive flows, you know, Vanguard's raising a billion dollars a day. Why now? Well, I think there are a few things. And, and, you know, when you see this thing really kick into gear, it was probably on the heels of the financial crisis. So let's call that roughly a decade, a little less than a decade ago. And that's where I think you started to see a little bit of the acceleration. And if you, let, if you, and you really said the last, you know, 12, 24 months, I think it's the Department of Labor rule on fiduciary responsibility. In our piece where we wrote about active versus passive, we try to take a very long-term view and look at the role of regulation and how regulations encourage not only mutual funds in general, so sort of more professional investing, but also indexing as well. So I think the DOL rule itself was probably a pretty important specific catalyst for acceleration of indexing. And it makes sense, right? Because if you have a fiduciary responsibility and you put someone into a product that competes with the S&P 500 and they do substantially worse, you don't want to expose yourself to any sort of liability in that regard. So you know, we spend our lives in active management to some degree. It's very sobering because the greater the skill with the paradox of skill, the harder it is to outperform. And the academic data, what you read, what Warren Buffett says, all lends itself to, by and large, active managers underperform. And I was surprised to read a piece that you wrote about the Burke and Green paper that perhaps showed that the the academic research we all support might not be, in aggregate, as bad as it appears. Yeah, I mean, there there really are, I'll say there are two papers, and I'm going to come back to Burke and Green, but there are two papers, I think, that are really interesting to frame this discussion. The, the first paper is actually Grossman-Stiglitz. So Sandy Grossman and Joe Stiglitz in 1980 wrote a paper called On the Impossibility of Informationally Efficient Markets. And their basic argument was markets can't be perfectly informationally efficient because there's a cost of gathering information and reflecting in prices. And as fair compensation for, to, to assume that cost, there should be a requisite benefit. 
And that's the first thing for people to bear in mind is that there is going to be, I don't know if we're going to call it a hard equilibrium, but there should be some sort of equilibrium between opportunities and costs. Lasse Pedersen's got this good phrase for this. He calls it markets have to be efficiently inefficient. So there has to be enough inefficiency to encourage people to continue to gather information and reflect it, but it can't be lots of easy pickings. Burke and Green paper from 2004, and, the, and Burke has had some follow-ups with our colleagues that are, I think, very provocative. Their first question was, you know, academics have been talking about efficient markets for 40 years. Why has the memo not gotten out there? You know, why is there still active management? And again, 2004, it was still bigger than it is today. And their argument was, you know, we're, we're not really thinking about this exactly the right way. We're, for example, when we say what percent of funds don't beat the market, if you're running a hundred billion dollars and a hundred million dollars, you're both one fund, right? Whereas the guy who's running a hundred billion is much more consequential. So they came up with this basic argument where they said, you know, over time, money tends to go to the more successful investors. They tend to get more AUM. There is diseconomies of scale, so there that means their expected alpha tends to drift lower. But eventually, things sort of sort out pretty well. That the smarter people get more money. So they recommended a kind of a different way of thinking about evaluating managers, which I think actually is, is really interesting. They said, you know, the way to think about it is, well, well, I'm going to call it gross profit. But basically you say, we're going to look at the gross return of the manager, right? So pre-fee, risk adjusted, minus their benchmark, times AUM, assets under management. So in a way, the way to think about that is how much value can that manager extract from the market? In dollars. And so there's a good example they give in the paper, or it's a more recent follow-up paper, but the same framework. They said, look, Peter Lynch, Magellan, legendary guy, first five years running Magellan, the guy's lighting it up. He's got amazing alpha, amazing excess returns, but he's running basically a puny amount of money. So by their reckoning, his monthly gross profit was $770,000, right? Not bad, but you know, okay. By the last five years running Magellan, his alpha was substantially lower, albeit still positive. So he's still in percentage terms, but he's running a lot of, ton of money now, right? And so his monthly alpha gross profit, pardon me, value extraction was over $20 million, right? So the way to think about it, again, is smaller excess return spread on a much bigger AUM basis, right? So the way to think about that metaphorically would be, it's like you and I playing poker, you know, one night you're playing, you're cleaning up with the really weak players who have no money, and the next day you're playing with the high stakes guys who are really skillful, right? You're still winning, but you're, you're actually winning much more money because the stakes are much higher. So when you apply the Burke and that sort of framework, you start to see numbers that are slightly different. You, you see a higher, so asset weighted return, bent percent of funds being the market is a higher percentage. What, what does it come to? I know the numbers are really it, small. It adds, for- well, you know, so if you look at, if you just look unweighted numbers, we have these data back to probably the mid 60s, but unweighted numbers, about 40% of managers beat the market in an average year. And the standard deviations high, it's like 17% standard deviation. So if you want to say, what's the probability that this fund will beat it? It's a 40% with a 17 standard deviation. If you look at it on an asset weighted basis, the numbers go, they're not quite 50, but they get into the mid to high 40s. So it's a 10, call it a 10 or 15% uplift on that percentage basis. And that's not inconsequential. And of course, the gross profit thing is all pre-fee, and that's a very important thing to bear in, bear in mind. So if you are extracting value from the market, then the question becomes, what's a fair, in quotes, fee allocation between the manager and the, and the client and so forth? So, In Burke's work or Burke and Green's work, 
do they then measure as a percentage of invested assets? Yeah, they may have done it. We did it. So <laughs> we just did it. Now, I should say that just to be super crystal clear about this, we use a Morningstar U.S. equity mutual funds, right? So it's a large universe and it's, we got a lot of company, but, but a lot of funds, but just bearing that in mind. Yeah. And that number, that number also has been grinding lower, not inconsistent with the paradox of skill, although it's also feels very episodic. So you get these periods where that, and we measured specifically gross profit as a percentage of assets under management, exactly as you described it. And this is basically the value extraction. And it goes back to the same thing. And this, you know, as we just talk in general, is that Whenever you're investing, the key question is always, who's on the other side of my trade? And why do I think that I have some sort of an edge, right? And that's that's always the question every day you invest. That's the question you should be asking yourself. So, you know, for institutional investors writ large to be winning, there's got to be someone on the other side of that trade. And, and like you mentioned a moment ago, if the people who used to be the losers are leaving the game, becomes more difficult. Yeah. Yeah. And what did your numbers show as a percentage of AUM? It's small. It's a small percentage. But the cumulative gross profit, I think we have 35 years of numbers, is about a trillion trillion net positive gross profit. So gross profit positive more than, you know, okay, as of trillion dollars. Now, that also happens to be about what the fees were in that time. So net, 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 it it turns out to be somewhat of a wash, which is what kind of what you would expect from a big picture point of view. But yeah, it remains modestly positive, but again, it goes back to the, and and, you know, there's there's great work by other academics, including Russ Wormers at University of Maryland, basically showing that active managers generally do generate excess returns. They're just not sufficient to cover the fees that they charge, right? So it's not... So it's a question of net versus Yeah, gross. I know. Last time we saw each other at University of Virginia, it was like this last month, Pedro Matos, a professor down there, had done this paper about concentration. And similarly, I don't think he had done asset-weighted. But he said if you looked at high active share managers, and he was defining as 60%, so I would, I would actually say that's not that high active share. But that those managers, again, you maybe you went from 40% to high 40s in terms of who beat the market. So it's still hard. Now, most of these studies that we cite are all relative to the S&P and it's focused on the U.S. Have you looked internationally in the, in the equity markets internationally? We've done very little of that, but I think you're exactly right. I always think about asset classes on a continuum of efficiency. And, you know, part of it's a function of the size and the value, potential value extraction and so forth. So it is convenient to pick U.S. equity markets because it's roughly half the global equity capitalization and we have good data and we have it going back a long way. But your point's an absolutely valid one, which is there's a continuum of efficiency by asset classes and U.S. S&P is probably among, if not the most competitive markets in the world. So as you as you move away from that, you tend to see less efficiency. Now, the other thing I'll just mention about one of the one of the Matos papers, which I found fascinating, is they did do a spin around the world and looked at closet indexing, which they defined as market active share of less than 60%, explicit indexing, and active management, and then looked at how different folks did. And you know, there are a couple interesting things. Clearly, there's a trend toward explicit indexing, but they found that in markets where the explicit indexing was highest, active managers often did the best. Which, which seems kind of weird, but it turns out there are a couple factors for that. One is if you're an active manager in a market where there's a lot of explicit indexing, you feel compelled to do something very different. It, 
have basically have a high active share, right? You say, if I'm getting paid fees to be an active manager, I better not be closeted. I should really try to do something different. That's for, the first interesting thing is, and the second is, if there's a lot of explicit indexing, it shines a light on, on fees. So active managers tend to charge charge lower fees. And by the way, that's the other thing about big funds. Not surprisingly, big funds on average charge lower fees than smaller funds. And that's another that's another thing that contributes to their, their relative performance relative to smaller funds. So it's an interesting thing. And, and, and look, it's a perpetual game. I mean, there's always, there always have to be inefficiencies and there always have to be ways to try to capture those things, but they're always moving targets, right? So Michael, your new seat here at Blue Mountain is a credit shop. As you shine a credit lens on some of these same issues, what have you found in the in your early months here? Well, I think, you know, Blue Mountain has multiple strategies. So credit is being one of them, but there are equities and systematic equities and distress and so forth. You know, I guess, look, there are two basic elements. One is that, okay, at first I should say, oh, I've always been a believer that it's very useful even if you're an equity investor or a credit investor to understand what's going on in other markets. So if you're an equity investor, you should understand what's going on in the credit markets and the options markets and CDS markets, credit investors should understand equities and so forth, right? So just having other touchstones, I think is incredibly valuable for you to get a full context of what's going on. But if you step back and think about investment process and, and, and some of the things we do here are not necessarily purely fundamental, there are two things that are, that are consistent. One is there is fundamental analysis, which is how our business is going to perform. And whether you're a credit investor, distressed investor, or equity investor, that's going to be relevant. And so those sets of tools are going to be important. And the second thing, which spans probably everything we do, not just here, but anybody who's making investment, is really about decision making. And decision making is that's the sort of common denominator of, of all investing or capital allocation in general. And at the end of the day, to me, a lot of investing capital allocation decisions boil down to, yeah, it's probabilities and outcomes and trying to be on the right side of expected values. So, yeah, so notwithstanding the fact that there may be different strategies and people doing somewhat different things, you can you can distill these things down typically to some common denominators that are going to be relevant for everybody. And what are those most important ones for decision making? Well, I do, like I said a moment ago, I do think it's probabilities and outcomes, but the challenge is, is how do we how do we screw those up, right? So a couple themes I'll mention. One of the ones that I've been very excited about, it's work on base rates. And this is really the this is really I, th- I associate it mostly with Danny Kahneman, but it's this idea that when you're thinking about any kind of a forecast, it's incredibly important to understand and acknowledge the reference class from which this problem comes and to weight your own views with the evidence you have from the reference class. So let me try to make that slightly more concrete with one example. In March of this year, The Economist ran a cover story on Amazon.com, and Amazon's awesome, right? An analyst in there suggested that Amazon would be able to grow its revenues 15% a year through the year 2025. And by the way, you know, they did $103 billion in 2015. They did $136 billion last year. They're on track to do $177 billion this year. So, right, they're coming out of the gates clearly ahead of that pace. So the, the, that's the, the inside view. That's the sort of analyst view. And by the way, if I sat down with that analyst, I'm sure they would have an amazing model where they you know, go business by business and they build it up and it'd be very compelling. The outside view, right, the base rate would say, let's look at the sweep of history. Well, I'm exaggerating a bit. We went back to 1950. Let's look at every company that had initial revenues of 100 billion or more. So obviously adjusted for inflation. 
and look at how they did in their subsequent growth rates for the next 10 years. And by the way, because this is such rarefied space, you know, 100 billion, there are only 313 examples of this, but 313 is not zero. And it turns out no company's ever grown 15% a year. And only seven have grown more than 10%. So seven out of 313, 2%. Now, might Amazon do it? Absolutely. What probability would you want to place on that? And the answer is probably not going to be your base case, right? It's probably going to be something like, so even if you're very optimistic, you should be measured in what your probability is. And so that's the thing. So Kahneman makes, has this great line in Thinking Fast and Slower. He basically says, you know, people who are doing their own work don't feel like they need to understand the reference class, but understanding the reference class almost always makes you a better thinker. So, so that's one, that's one of the big things. And then there are just tons of biases. You know, there, there are things like overconfidence. We tend to be overconfident. And as we think about the future, which, which means often our ranges of outcomes are too narrow confirmation bias. Heck, if you're in the investing business and you haven't fallen for this one, you're not, you're not doing your job. I mean, you know, we all do it. It's just, you make a decision, you seek information that confirms your point of view and you dismiss, disavow, discount information that doesn't. And it's just a very natural thing for all of us to do. So it's our constant battle with ourselves, right? To think about these things probabilistically and to be very systematic about it. Have you spent time either on boards or with the allocator community that I spent a lot of time with? And through that, what are some of the lenses that you use, whether it's base rates, behavioral biases, luck and skill, as it applies to allocators? You know, the closest thing, Ted, and I don't know if it counts, but the clo- you know, I have done a fair bit with investment committees, which is probably related. And by the way, some of the work on investment committees has really encouraged me to do a lot of work just on teams in general, but let's call them committees in general. And so I, I think there are three, there are really three things that I've drawn from that literature that animate my thinking about this. The first is the size of a committee or the size of a team. And, you know, there's been a lot of work on this. The main guy that comes to mind is Richard Hackman, who's a professor at Harvard. And, you know, he studied teams across all different disciplines and found that the optimal size was four to six. And there was actually a really interesting survey of investment committees in particular. And they and basically every person who's on a committee of seven or more says we would be more effective if we were smaller or we would not be more effective if we were bigger. Right. So that's a really interesting thought is just how many people are on your committee and. By the way, I'm chairman of the board of the Santa Fe Institute. We probably have 25 or, you know, 25-ish people on our board. Nothing's happening at a board meeting. I should, I should say that publicly. <laughs> no, nothing's happening at the board meeting. All the work is happening at the committee level, right, which is the smaller groups. And then the board, you're sort of, you know, okay. So so there, there are political reasons or other reasons people could be on these committees that may or may not be good for decision-making. So that's the first, so team size. And the second is sort of team composition and, and the big point of emphasis here is, is while we talk a lot about diversity, which is almost always social category diversity, race, gender, age, ethnicity, and so forth, the real key is cognitive diversity. People with different experiences and backgrounds and training and personalities that can surface different points of view. And that's really the key to, I think, good quality decision making. And so there are mechanisms, and we, we actually do them here, but we spend time talking about these mechanisms to make sure that we're surfacing different alternatives within that committee but that, I think, is really, really key. And, and one of the things that's very, it seems to me very typical in an investment committee is to say, we're gonna, our committee is going to have 
the credit guy and the private equity guy or gal and so forth. And so anytime we make a credit decision, we, we rely on the woman that does that. And okay. So there's a lot of evidence that shows that's not really the way you want to do these things. You want to let everybody weigh in on everything else. And then the, the final thing is how we actually make decisions. And I've always thought that in the world of investing, it's just really rare to have an honest consensus. You know, most good investment ideas are controversial. It's very rare that everyone says, this is obviously brilliant or obviously, right? And so I'm a big fan of, you know, ballot voting systems, maybe strong majority, but majority ballot voting systems, let people vote independently. And so those are some of the things that I think are important. Now, the other thing that, and I think that you're, you know, you know much more about this than I do, but there's just an incredible literature, both for individuals and institutions to demonstrate that people tend to have bad timing. Right. In other words, okay, there are a lot of reasons you fire a manager, but the number one reason is their performance has been poor. There are a lot of reasons you hire a manager, but truth be told, the number one reason you hire them is their performance has been good. And we know that study after study demonstrates that if you bought the funds that were fired and so, sold the ones that were hired, you actually, just because of regression toward the mean, you do much better. So that's the other thing is, and by the way, it's totally human nature, right? You're on a committee, you have your 10 funds, these done, the three, three have done great, these three have done badly, and you're like, why do we own these bad ones? <laughs> why don't we own more of the good ones? It's like totally human nature. But you have to resist that temptation because regression is such a powerful mechanism in investing. And that component of confirmation bias, where even if you lay out the reasons why you think this is an excellent manager and the risks of why that might be a weak manager, what happens is in these groups, when the manager underperforms, we say, aha, we were right. And not only that, the manager's not as good as we thought because these risks played out. So there's this awareness and cognition of chasing performance and confirmation bias, but it happens anyway, which is kind of astounding. Yeah, that's the other thing about a lot of these behavioral things, these biases, is that they happen, even if you're totally aware of them, they still, they're still really hard to circumvent. So you do have to create mechanisms to try to be as effective as possible to, to address them is as they show up. Is there a particular mechanism that you found? You touched on, I mean, I think writing things down is really helpful. And just, and just for someone to be aware, just Ted, what you just said, which is, hey, you know, I know that we had pros and cons for manager X and they've underperformed. So now we're only dwelling on the cons. Let's, let's revisit the pros, right? Or, or vice versa, right? These guys have been doing great. We're patting ourselves on the back. But let's remember these things we were concerned about and those things may still rear their heads. So. I want to circle back to sort of forming a team or a committee, as the case may be. If we're aware of this concept of cognitive diversity, how do you go about either interviewing someone for your team or selecting someone if it's a committee and become aware of what their cognitive bias is and, and how that would then coalesce into a higher functioning team? We all have biases, right? So it's just a question of degree. A couple things come to mind. The first is just in cognitive diversity. It's just be willing to cast a wider net than you might be comfortable casting. So people who have very different backgrounds. By the way, one of the reasons I've really enjoyed listening to your podcast is you find these people who have been very successful in the allocation community who have sort of these quirky backgrounds. And I'm like, that's really awesome, right? It just shows to you that it doesn't, you don't have to be some, you know, finance major or whatever it is. You know, that's the first thing. And just being, being willing to entertain those people. So people have weird backgrounds, bring them on board. The second thing I'll just mention, there's a strand of work that I, I, I just love. And I also think would be a nice compliment to this. And that's work by Keith Stanovich. And Stanovich has made this really important distinction between IQ, which measures something very real, helpful, more of it tends to be better, and what he calls RQ, rationality quotient, which is the ability to make good decisions. About a year ago, a little over a year ago, he published a book called The Rationality Quotient with a couple of colleagues. 
and it lays out for the first time sort of an assessment of rational thinking. And that might be a very nice compliment to this. So find people with sort of weird backgrounds, but essentially test them or assess them on their ability to think rationally. And it could be that combination that might be the sweet spot for, for success. What do you think are the biggest risks in the markets today? That's a hard one to answer. I mean, certainly not in the forecasting business. I guess what makes me feel least settled or most unsettled is that just the very low levels of volatility that we've realized. And I think one could make a case for why volatility should be lower, and there may be some arguments that are reasonable. That said, having been around for a long time and and having charts going on volatility going back to the 1800s, we know that, at least historically, volatility tends to be clustered. So we get periods of very low volatility interspersed with periods of very high volatility. So you said to me, like, what is the thing I worry the most about? It would be that we have some sort of a regime change in volatility that will catch people off guard. Now, you know, historically, sometimes low volatility is encouraged. There's actually an article today in the Wall Street Journal. This is end of December, suggesting that, you know, banks are becoming trying to encourage money managers to borrow more, right? And, and it's a very clear temptation, right? Because you have low returns, and low volatility, borrowing is leverage is one way to get your returns up. So that would that would be one thing that concerns me. There, I think that there are other things that I, I find interesting. I don't know they should be concerns, but you remember the August 2007 quant meltdown. We've obviously seen a substantial increase in sort of quantitative systematic strategies. By and large, I, I'm fine with that. I think that makes sense. But I do wonder to what degree some strategies may be correlated in ways that we don't really understand. And so how some of these algorithms will behave in a period of stress, I think is unknown. So that that's always a point of worry. And then the other typical stuff, which is I think we have a difficult time just in general is understanding, anticipating any sort of geopolitical problems. And so that those are put, put those down as the standard concerns at, at all times. But I think the, the thing that's sort of for me front and center is this notion of just very low volatility. And, you know, I saw an interesting chart the other day and went back probably 50 years, but looked at the average volatility for the S&P 500 and the average basis point change in the 10-year treasury note. And if you plot those things so on the x-axis, imagine just average volatility for the S&P 500 on the y-axis, change in yield of the 10-year note. And you plot these things. We're, we're in the extreme left bottom corner, right? Very little change in the the treasury note, very little change in the S&P 500. And again, going back to base rates, if you were to make a bet, you would unlikely to bet that it persists at that in that spot. So treasury rates are really low. So when you start with that denominator, That's for, right. you, you have to be on the left side. You're going to be on the left side no matter. You are. I think, but to your point, it's the volatility S&P that's anomalous. Right? And by the way, the S, going back to the, even the paradox of skill and the small variance in performance of active managers, part of that's also a function of the volatility being low. And we can demonstrate that. So, you know, it's very difficult to distinguish yourself either favorably or unfavorably when the volatility of the markets are very low. Have you looked at all in the area of liquidity and what's going on with ETFs and other places where you have this sort of strange bull market where when you talk to participants, they feel like there's very little trading liquidity, and particularly so in some of the credit markets? 
Yeah, I guess liquidity is another area that I do have concerns. And I think you're right. Most of the volume, for example, in ETFs would be things like the Spider, which is the S&P 500. And there's just not, there's unlikely to be a big issue there. But as you point out, we've had this massive proliferation and especially into credit markets. And, you know, one area we could just pick would be high yield. And the ETF instruments are much more liquid than the underlying. And that might be the scenario you might imagine. So how do people get freaked out about ETFs in general, and, and we can call it indexing writ large. And it could be something like that, which is there's some sort of stress in the high yield market. The ETFs don't trade very well relative to the underlying. And there are articles in all the newspapers saying, gee, these ETFs aren't as good as we thought they were. That spooks people. And then people have a difficult time distinguishing between something that's illiquid and something that's liquid and so forth. And then it becomes a slight, you know, somewhat of a cascading effect. There's been a lot of lot of work done on liquidity, of course. Dealer inventories are way down. And I just don't think we've tested it because many of the traditional tests of liquidity are things like bid offer spreads and, and realized prices. But you can't really test it in non-stressed environments. So if we get into a stress environment, that would be another thing. I think you're exactly right. That would be another issue. And these all kind of go together, right? You get a volatility increase, you have concerns about liquidity, and it becomes these sort of amplifying effects that could that could freak people out. So I can't pass up the opportunity to turn the conversation to sports. I know that you have crossed over your, your book success equation had some really great, you know, whether it's paradox of skill or other anecdotes. And I also know from our conversations that you're fairly plugged in with a lot of the data junkies in the sports world. Why don't I just open it up and ask you what's most interesting to you today about the hybrid of data and sports? Well, I mean, it's amazing to me that we are thinking about games in ways that we hadn't thought about before and opening up our minds. Just a couple things come to mind immediately. The first is, and it's not sports per se, but even things like AlphaGo and AlphaZero is mind-boggling in the sense, first of all, the advancements and how those things became superhuman. Now, we knew that was going to happen with some probability, but more interestingly to me is when I watch, I listen to the great whether Go players or chess players, and they say these programs are playing moves that just weren't even on our mental repertoire, and we're learning from them. Some of these moves in retrospect are really beautiful. So it's like opening up our, our mental space, which is super interesting. And then the second is just changes in, in actual strategies and games. And, you know, the famous one, of course, just shifts in baseball. And you say for baseball has been played for 100 and whatever, 25 years and pretty much the same things. And all of a sudden people realize, well, we now know where these guys tend to hit the ball. We're going to just put defenders in those spots. Right. And the other one to me is totally fascinating is, for example, the evolution of the three point shot in, in, in basketball and Teams like the Houston Rockets were basically say we want all our shots to be either three-pointers or basically layups, like at the rim or three-point. And I was talking to actually a, a, a basketball executive about this not long ago, and he said, we're actually nowhere near the point of saturation on three-point shooting. He's another thing that goes, given the percentages, we could move people back off the three-point line two or three more feet right before the prob- their, their percentages go down Steph sufficiently. Steph Curry phenomenon, right? And then, of course, the very fact that everyone's doing this is encouraging people to practice more so they get better at it and so on and so forth. Well, that's that recursive. I mean, one of my favorite books the last two years was Big Data Baseball, which was this Pittsburgh Pirates. I love that. Yeah. It's what happens after you understand Moneyball. Right. And these sort of repeat game theory of the same thing with new data. Right. And the thing that blew me away from that in that book, which I hadn't really thought much about, was pitch framing. 
So this, and that goes back to the human element as well, right? That these catchers, the idea that these catchers can position themselves to catch pitches in such a way that the umpire calls it a strike instead of a ball. And some catchers are better at it than others. And simply bringing in a pitcher, a catcher, pardon me, who's really good at pitch framing can lead to, the numbers seem to me like unbelievable, (laughs) you know, over a season, substantial delta in the number of games won. So that, that stuff like that. And that's a human, that's a comp- perfect example of analytics and the human dimension, right? Right. Then the other one, I'm, right now I'm reading scorecasting, which, you know, one of those key insights, they, they study home court advantage in baseball. And shockingly, because we think of it as, oh, well, the Yankees just picked up Stanton. It's a short porch in left field. And it was entirely the umpire's subconscious bias in key moments calling in a borderline pitch, a strike for the home team. Right. And actually, you know, so I was actually talking about the same basketball because I'm talking about this as well. And, you know, it's the same thing. He's like, you know, you have you're the home team. You've got 20,000 rabid fans. You know, how are you going to make the calls? If you're the official, right? It's like they you make a call they like. They all cheer. You make a call they don't like. They all boo. It's like, OK, that's the feedback over time. You know, I don't know how subconscious or conscious it is. But, yeah, you can see how that would work. Anyway, it's really isn't that. Yeah. So I love all that stuff. And, you know, some people feel like it takes some of the excitement out of it. I actually don't feel that way at all. And and by the way, it seems to me there are still huge opportunities out there. It's amazing that even like in the NFL where there are huge stakes, there's still a lot of suboptimal decisions made. You know, the famous one is fourth going forward on fourth down. And then there are other sports. You know, I think soccer is coming along, but other sports like ice hockey, where it's really, you know, still very early days in terms of understanding what we can do differently and so forth. So I, I, I find this stuff to be fascinating. That's one of the things that, you know, especially coming up with these sort of counterintuitive or or things that we just didn't think were good ideas end up being better ideas yeah. than we thought. I, think I love the framing you know, of all the psychological biases too, because in sports, you mentioned it going forward on fourth down, which is proven to be a successful strategy pretty much wherever you are on the field. And then of course, in basketball, you have the underhand free throw. <laughs> yeah. Which is, and I'm trying to remember, was that Gladwell? Who- Malcolm Gladwell had an awesome podcast on that. And apparently that day that Will Chamberlain scored 100 points in Hershey, Pennsylvania, he was shooting underhand free throws and made like 90% of them. And it was like one, and it wasn't captured on tape. And apparently it was kind of a one-off. He just did it a few times. And yeah, but Wilt, you know, and that was the whole point, right? For the other side of his life, the well-known personal side of his life. Right. He couldn't possibly shoot underhand free yeah, throws. Yeah, it's like and- social capital. But, you know, <laughs> I'll, I'll say, Ted, the one thing that, that, and I'm sure you fully appreciate this, is that I do think that there's an element of career risk. And this this spans not just sports, but also investment management, right? Which is Bill Belichick goes for and a fourth down and it doesn't work out. People give him the benefit of the doubt. But if you're a coach who's got a 500 team, it may be the correct decision, but you lose that game. People don't think about the quality of your decision-making process. They do think about the outcome. And that's a real big problem. So, so these guys might be saying, you know, if I punt it, uh, we may lose the game, but no one's going to say, you know, Ted punted. That was bad. Whereas if you go, so I, I think there's that element as well that people go, what's the, what gives me the best probability of sticking in my seat? And this is idea of career well, yeah, risk. And on the investment management side, the Scott Malpasses, Andy Goldens, Dave Swenson's of the world can try things with no career risk that someone who's two, three, four years in a new seat couldn't possibly risk. And it's probably the same thing if you think of stage of money management organization. Totally. And, you know, I thought in the, in the comment, you know, your discussion with Scott, he mentioned one thing that I thought was really interesting and I hadn't thought much about, which was extraordinary continuity of their committees and, and sort of the leadership. And that's another one. You know, if I, I've been working for you with you for 10, 15 years, 
or even if I've got experience and I know that your decision making process is good, I can cut you, I can cut you much more slack. And that's something we do have that's absent in our industry. And that gets to another issue, I think, also for capital allocators, which is, you know, what is an appropriate time frame for us to evaluate decisions and so forth. And that's a really tricky, you know, because I, I would say that some of the academic work and some of the simulation work suggest that the time horizon is a little bit longer than it is practically. But the flip side is if I'm an allocator and I have someone who's underperforming, I don't really don't know if it's just a good process that's, you know, having a t- tough spell or they've lost their marbles, right? And then th- those are, you know, sometimes those are not easy distinctions to make. So I, I, I get that how tricky it is. But it is an industry where, you know, it's the marathon, not the sprint. Let's turn to your work or involvement with the Santa Fe Institute. And similarly, I mean, there's so we've had some fascinating conversations about some of the things that you learn. But why don't you start with what is the Santa Fe Institute and then maybe share a story or two that comes to your mind? Yeah, so the Santa Fe Institute was founded in mid-1980s by a number of very eminent scientists who had a very similar sensation that much of academia had become very siloed. So the physicists talked to the physicists and the biologists talked to biologists, but that many of the vexing and most important issues in the world were at the intersections of disciplines. And by the way, if you go to standard university, I mean, even go to Yale, awesome place, but it is typically quite siloed in many ways. So they started this institute, which was meant to be transdisciplinary. And the unifying theme is the study of complex systems. And complex systems are pretty easy to, to articulate. It's a bunch of agents. We'll call them heterogeneous agents. They could be neurons in your brain, people in the city of New York, or of course, investors in the market. We allow them to interact with one another. And through that interaction, we get this concept called emergence. And then you get a global system, whether that's consciousness or your immune system or the operations of the city of New York, and of course, markets. So how does this all work and at what different scales? So that to me, you know, so we have, again, this hodgepodge from, you know, from computer scientists to physicists to, to psychologists all working on these kinds of problems. And is there a mission involved in that? Not really a mission. It's just, it's just, and by the way, it's basic research. It's not policy oriented. I learned about SFI first a little over 20 years ago from Bill Miller, who preceded me as chairman of the board. And Bill, in particular, had been drawn in by some of the work by Brian Arthur, an economist there. And I'll I'll mention sort of like, what are these big, big ideas? So Brian was a professor at Stanford and had done this work on this concept called increasing returns. And by the way, it's much more accepted today than it was when he started working on this. But we are taught in microeconomics, and there's a lot of reason we're taught this, is that returns, marginal returns tend to migrate toward the cost of capital. Right. High return on capital businesses attract competition, which drive returns down and so forth. And Brian had identified these situations, what he called increasing returns, where there was no regression toward the mean. There was actually a repulsion from the mean. The winners were winning, losers were losing. And he identified sort of the qualities and features and things like network effects, things we talk more about. And that was, you know, it was completely out there. It was completely crazy. In fact, many people in the traditional economics field compl- frowned on it. So there, that was one example of something. Once I understood, by the way, and I was, I've always thought the efficient market hypothesis was, in a sense, I never thought it was literally true, but it, always a very beautiful construct. Uh, to me, it was, a, it was a wonder, and I still feel that way in many, many regards. But then I started to understand markets as a complex adaptive system. And, and adaptive is really important because it means the agents, in this case, investors, are coming, have decision rules to, on how they behave, but those decision rules themselves adapt based on the environment, right? So the market itself, so this is what Soros calls reflexivity, the markets themselves reflect on how you behave and back and forth, right? So there's this 
feedback loop between these two things. Once you start thinking about markets as complex adaptive systems, I don't think you can ever you can ever think about it in any other way. Interestingly, by the way, I think that the market as complex adaptive systems both explains why markets tend to be efficient. This is you know the, the, the wisdom of crowds concepts, but also explains why markets episodically go haywire, which they clearly do. And you read books like Andrew Lowe's new book called Adaptive Markets, which is great. Adaptive markets, I think, is fundamentally a statement or restatement of comp- markets as complex adaptive systems. So I, I think it's just an incredibly rich way to think about the world. It fits with many of the empirical things we see, for example, like cluster volatility. And it allows us to understand why this is, I think, one of the big fallacies with behavioral economics, which is the fact that you and I are suboptimal. And it's easy for us to show that we're suboptimal as individuals. That doesn't necessarily translate into a market setting right? Because our errors may cancel out. You're overconfident, you buy, I'm overconfident, I sell. It's a wash, right? Basically. So it's, it's, it's kind of, it captures a lot of the, the, that stuff. The, the one other thing I'll say, I mean, there are just many ideas that, are, that come out of SFI that are really cool, but there's one, there was a book that came out earlier this year, which I, I've recommended everybody I speak with is, is Jeffrey West's new book called Scale. And Jeffrey's a physicist by training. He's a former president of the Institute. And what he does is he uses basically physics to explain some of the empirical regularities we see in biological systems. And that, by the way, is wondrous to start. But he then carries that on to social systems, including cities and how cities operate, and even working to corporations. So we have all these really interesting empirical regularities that have been observed for a long time. And our folks at SFI start to unpack it, which is so exciting, right? And so, by the way, you get the sense of it. The people who are attracted to SFI tend to be people interested in lots of different topics. So there's huge self-selection. So people go out there. Almost every conversation you have is going to be a a fascinating conversation with people from all different walks of life. I recall, I mean, I spent a couple weeks here a couple summers ago. And, you know, I remember sitting down with a lunch. We have lunch together. And there was this raging debate about whether a horse could beat a human in a marathon. And I'm like, and I'm like, where else do you sit down to lunch? <laughs> and it's not just a discussion. It's like a... It's a what, so what were the two sides? As a former marathon well, runner, I'm kind of curious. Yeah, about, exactly. What were so the two sides I, of that like debate? you believe that you could beat a horse. Yeah, the, the question was whether, because horses can't go that, they can't go for 26 miles. So the question is, could you train a horse to do it or not? And, you know, you can train a human. And so this goes back to the whole thing about, you know, is the reason humans are humans because we can run for a long time and bipedal and allows us to capture animals and so on and so forth. So anyway, it was an issue. But it's kind of thing like, who's having these kinds of conversations? What's the next big piece of research that you're working on? So we have a couple things that we're working on now. I've been spending a lot of time thinking about the idea of comparing things. And it sounds very trivial, right? But as humans, we compare things all the time. And it turns out there's, it's actually been a big area of study in cognitive psychology. And by the way, the, the short answer is that the number one way we use to compare things is by analogy. This is like that. And that, is inc- that approach is incredibly effective if you've got the appropriate analogy, right? But it breaks down pretty quickly in terms of breadth and depth. In other words, usually, you know, you might have a great memory, but it's probably finite. And so you're, you may not remember the appropriate analogy or know of the appropriate analogy. And then depth is this idea that you may pick the wrong things, the wrong features of both of the things, the focal and the analogy to make an appropriate comparison. So it gets into things like causality versus correlation and so forth. And then at the end, you know, toward the end of this piece, we try to talk about how to deal with these things. And it is stuff we've talked a little bit about, things like base rates and so forth. 
We're doing a lot of work and it relates to this concerns about low volatility and liquidity on pro-cyclicality. So how do we think about loose credit and tight credit? And I think the sort of bedrock, a lot of that work will be that of John G. Nicopoulos at Yale, who wrote up some papers on the leverage cycle. John's, I think, very provocative point is that it's not about interest rates. It's about margin requirements. It's about the ability to borrow. And we tend to think that if we lower interest rates, the world is going to be better and we raise interest rates, it's going to be you know, loose tight. And he's saying that that's not really the key thing. It's, it's whether. And so you saw this in the wake of the financial crisis where rates were obviously down, but it was very difficult for people to borrow still, to even to buy a home or whatever it was. So it wasn't the interest rate, it was the collateral. And I would assume those things normalize over time, that in an economic system, for the most part, when rates are lower, there's more borrowing, more margin. Yeah, it may not be the case. And that's the thing. You just think about the wake of the financial crisis. We sort of, even this coordinated central bank rates, it's, it's, not, it's not been an interest rate problem. It's been, you can't borrow easily. And to your point, yeah, I mean, when things are good, you tend to get access to capital. So that's an interesting, you can just take a look at this and see collateral requirements over time. And they tend to be very liberal when things are doing well. And they tend to be very strict when things are doing badly. And again, you do want the opposite. You want to take the punch bowl away when things are rocking and rolling and you want to bring it back when things are depressed. And so that's just, that's another thing that's really interesting. There's, there's some fascinating data on that. And, you know, we're obviously looking at that in sort of as a framework, but also try to get a level set of kind of where we stand today. I have been thinking a lot about this topic of, you know, it's almost always the case that regulators are fighting yesterday's battles. I don't suspect leverage is going to be the next big challenge. I do think liquidity might be might be the case. Rick Bookstaver's got a new book, by the way, called The End of Theory, and, and Rick talks a little bit about it. He's got a couple chapters dedicated to this, and I think there's some that's worth paying attention to for sure. We are going to turn to my, as you'd expect, some closing <laughs> questions. But before that, my friend Morgan Housel had this wonderful quote that came on Twitter that said, the most underrated investing skills are controlling your emotions and having your career coincide with the 30-year decline in interest rates. <laughs> exactly. So as you and I sit here <laughs> with this sobering reality of how incredibly difficult active management is, however we measure it, we can try to measure it in ways that say maybe it's not as bad as certain studies show. At a simple level, you know, our friend Warren Buffett will come out and say, oh, just index it's that simple. Okay, maybe not. You have to pick what to index and you know, whether, whether the U.S. is the right market. As, as an individual, as a person whose career has been in researching active management, understanding how it all works, and then you have someone as brilliant as Warren saying, eh, forget all that, because at the end of the day, it all balances itself out. Are there mornings where you wake up and say, maybe I should apply this pro, you know, prodigious skill in researching to things that will be different that have a better <laughs> chance of winning that are, you know, have some better feeling of fulfillment. I don't know that these things are totally contradictory. So I, I'm in the same camp as Buffett and others where I would say that if you're not interested in investing and you're not willing to spend a lot of time and attention on it, indexing is probably a very sensible thing to do. A diversified index portfolio. Your discussion with Scott Malpass, I think Scott made a comment that struck me. I don't know if it's right, but he said, you know, he said there are probably 30 or 50 allocators in the world, or I don't know if it's in the states or in the world, that can really figure out who's skillful and how to do this. 
the rest of you guys don't try this, right? Kind of thing, you know, and I think there's something to, to be said to that for that. That said, you know, being an organization that does seek active management, you know, there are weird things out there. I mean, there are inefficiencies there. We call them the easy games. There are situations where there are opportunities to generate excess returns, but you need to be focused on those. You need to diligent, hardworking, and so forth. So I'm trying to have it both ways. I think you can have it both ways to some degree. So if I, you know, at a holiday party, if I, an aunt or uncle says, how do I invest? I would probably say, you know, indexing probably does make sense for you. But for people who are more sophisticated and will have the time and energy and resources, I think they probably can think about how to generate these excess returns. And again, it's a moving target, right? That's the other thing to recognize is that different asset classes have different periods of degrees of inefficiencies. And always to think about in your mind, cataloging why you think this is something securities mispriced. And there are good reasons things are mispriced. I mean, there's been literature on spinoffs for a long time. There's been literature on institutions versus individuals. There are people who are forced sellers. There are people who are forced buyers. And they're doing things that are non-economic or for non-economic reasons. And, and those can present opportunities for the other side. I'm still going to push you on this because all of that is true. I agree with it. That's why I'm passionate about the business. But at the same time, the stats would tell you that it still all washes out, that if you're good at picking off those things – you probably are going to have too much money yeah, to that's find true. those opportunities. And so for you as an individual, do you ever have the point where you say, huh, this is just... I mean, I do think it's hard. And I do think you have to be measured about what is... You have to just be thoughtful about all these things, like what is an appropriate amount of capacity. And you're exactly right. I mean, the, and this, this goes back to what Charlie Ellis has talked... That was another great conversation you had. But it's sort of this great model that Charlie Ellis has, has argued about, which is the business and the profession. And the business is about generating fees and uh, revenues, and the profession's about generating excess returns. And, 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 you know, Charlie makes the point, I think, which is right. You need, you need a healthy business to pursue the profession appropriately, but you don't want to let the pendulum swing toward the business away from the profession. I think that's, that's, the big, that's a big challenge. That's something to be incredibly mindful of is that, is that topic. So, I, you know, I guess I'm, I'm still trying to have my cake and eat it too, <laughs> which I think that there is some balance. Be, but I think you raise these are really important issues. And you know, at Lake Mason Capital Management, we, you know, the, the, the AUM got to, I think, 65 or $70 billion. It's a lot harder to run $70 billion than it is to run $7 billion than it is to run $700 million. And that's something you always have to take into consideration. Okay, here we go. <laughs> what was your favorite sports moment? And for you, both as a participant and then separately as a fan? Well, as a fan, probably, this might be a little cliched, but man, 1980. Olympic hockey team oh, yeah. is a hard one to beat, and Al Michaels calling that. And you know, I was where were you I, at the time? I was I was in high school, and I still play ice hockey today. So I was a really avid ice hockey fan, and that was, you know, you play that game a hundred times. I don't know, the Russians win ninety eight or whatever it is. So I'll tell you, the very first live hockey game I saw because nineteen eighty, I was ten years old, <laughs> was the Madison Square Garden warm up. Oh, yeah, where, they where got the crushed. Russians they crushed. us. It was two weeks before. That's awesome. Yeah. Yes, that's a good one. You know, for me personally, I mean, this is going to sound ridiculous, but I played a lot. I played lacrosse in college and, and played in some tournaments. And, and, you know, about, I think it was 10 years ago, I, had, I was on a team. We only had 13 or 14 guys, which is too few. 
is at a tournament in Vail. The category is called Supermasters, which tells you of a certain age. And we had this team that just wouldn't quit. And we, you know, we won this one game and over time, big underdogs, and we beat a team from Navy, and we beat a team from Hobart, and we won that championship. And that was just a really gratifying, you know, it's sort of like the real underdog thing. And we had a couple guys just did a, an amazing job. But yeah, that was, that was probably for me, my personal sports highlight. Great. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? You know, it's interesting. My house now is filled with books, and, and I think that hopefully that's something that will rub off on my kids to some degree. I grew up in a house without any books, for the most part, and TV watching. And so it's so, interesting. So, so it might work out for... Yeah. So no, it's really interesting. So in a sense, I wasn't in that environment. But, but from both my parents, and especially my father, just very meticulous and doing the job the proper way. And I would have to mow the lawn and he would review my work. And if I missed a spot or did something inappropriate, he would send me back out. And of course, when you're a 10 or 12 year old kid, that's the last thing you want to do. But it's this idea of just being meticulous and being thoughtful about things and doing the job the right way. And, you know, there's a great section in the Steve Jobs book where his father taught, taught him about, you know, it was like finishing the back end of something that no one would ever see, but it was just the right thing to do. Right. And that was, that was my father. He was the kind of guy that, that always want to do a meticulous job, leave everything really, you know, just a job well done. So that, that this idea of like, it's not being a perfectionist, but it's really just trying to do things properly all the time. So I, I kind of have to ask, <laughs> with five kids, <laughs> which you have, how do you try to imbue that on your kids when there's probably something going on all the time? Yeah, I'm not sure there's much <laughs> you can do as a parent for all that kind of stuff. No, I think, yeah, part of it's by example. Part of it is, yeah, it's just probably communicating, you know, a little bit. You know, when the kids were little, I would tell them to do certain things like go to bed or whatever. But I try not to tell my kids to do anything. I try to offer recommendations or things to think about and, and try to get them to think for themselves a little bit. So here, here's some things to think about. Here's, here's something I recommend. Just take this into consideration. And more times than not, they'll see sort of where I'm coming from. So, yeah, and, and doing, the, doing a job well done, you know, I – and even if I'm trying to help them with their homework, or whatever, it's just this idea of like making sure you, you you do everything you should be doing, do it well, have pride in it, and so forth. So it's just it's effort, right? It's it's a Carol Dweck stuff. It's mindset. It's effort. It's hard work. Yeah. What information do you read of the vast amounts that you do that you think others might not know about but would benefit from? Well, I don't know if it's, there's in, information's an interesting word in and of itself. I, for better, for worse, and many days I think it's for worse, but for better, for worse, I probably spend a lot of time thinking about more frameworks than I do, like mental models than I do nuts and bolts. And the reason I'm a, a big mental model fan is I do think that when ideas are thrown at you, if you have a framework, a latticework to hang it on, you're going to be much more effective. One example I give, I mean, this is like a, tr this is a pretty nuts and bolts example, but you know, for example, uh, we have a framework for thinking about mergers and acquisitions and how to evaluate the quality of an M&A deal. And I just found as an analyst over the years and a strategist and so forth that analysts, almost every deal, it's like a one-off, right? They're, they're analyzing it without a framework. And if you have a framework for it, it just allows you to put things into context, analyze it quicker to be more accurate and so forth. So probably is that it's less the what information, but more like I'm, I'm very committed for better, for worse. Some days, like I said, for worse to mental models and, and thinking about big mental models. By the way, I'm a Buffett fan. I know you're a Buffett fan. I, I, I've learned probably more from Munger or I've taken I've probably taken more from Charlie Munger's work over the years. And I, I'm just such a huge fan of this understanding big ideas from different disciplines 
understanding that constant learning will lead you down a number of intellectual cul-de-sacs, but you never know when a framework or a model or, or something will be useful to you. And this idea of constant learning, I'm just a huge, just think it's such a big deal. And in this industry, by the way, it's just, you can't live without it, right? And Todd Combs, one of my students, I mean, you, you talk to those guys and how much time they spend reading and thinking. It's astounding. It's astounding. And, you, and, and they're obviously the best at what they do. But recognizing it's not about shuffling paper. It's really about thinking. And that's what put these, they, how they can make these such big decisions in short, short periods of time. The answer is because they've thought about stuff, right? Yeah. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your life? There are less life lessons, but I think that I, I do think that there are some of these, a couple mental models. I mean, so, so the first and foremost thing is that, I guess a couple things come to mind. One is just in terms of personal habits. It's very good for young people to recognize that sleeping properly, eating properly, and exercising properly are incredibly essential. And your productivity will really go up if you do those things properly. And I was probably, and maybe Ted, you were one of those guys too, but for years and years I thought, and especially with young kids, you know the drill, you think you can get by on a lot less sleep than you can and it's almost it there's you know there's a degree of cognitive impairment that comes with that so so that that's a, the first one the second thing is just you, you can't emphasize enough that hard work is really important in the investment industry hard work is not necessarily spending 16 hours you know at your desk it's constantly thinking and reading and learning right so but hard work and applying yourself let's say it that way and then there were a couple of these mental models that I really do wish I had known much younger. And, and the big one is, is that inside-outside view, this idea of understanding past performance and how that applies. And, you know, as we go through life, everything fe- feels unique to you. You know, you're moving from, you know, from New York to Boston. It feels like you're the first guy to have done that. But many people have done it before, right? And so, like, what is that, you know, how do I think about reference classes and how those, those can inform my decision-making? So that, that sort of mental model would be the, something else I would cite. All right. It's, it's the last years of your life. I've given up trying to throw a number. For you, it's probably 120 with the amount of reading you do. You are in a rocking chair cradling your lacrosse stick. What advice would you give yourself today? Yeah, I mean, I think that at the end of the, at the, end of the day, and it's, these are really interesting questions, you know, Atul Gawande wrote that beautiful book, Being Mortal, about the end of life. And I think you realize at the end of the day that – what makes humans most happy is ultimately relationships and family and friends and so forth. So probably the advice would be just never lose sight of that. There are a lot of little bumps that come along the road and and these are things that are addressable, but that, you know, keeping relationships at, at the focus is really important. I also think it's interesting that as you get older, it's probably really important to continue to stay in touch with young people. Now, it's easy when you have kids, it's sort of a natural to some degree, and that's helpful, but it's, it could be even intellectually. It's just making sure that you're constantly exposed to young people, right, who, who have just a different point of view of the world. And so that, that would be another thing is just to make sure that you hang out with new and young people that have different ideas and, and you're open to those. Michael, thank you so much. Outstanding as always. My pleasure, Ted. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you've liked what you've heard, please write a review on iTunes or Google Play to help others find out about the show. Have a good one and see you next time. 